Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Helen Scales, marine biologist and a writer. And I'm Shay Rhodes, I'm a journalist and filmmaker. And this is Earth Unscrewed. This living planet of ours is just jaw-droppingly amazing. And we're not exactly taking care of it, are we? We've got oceans full of plastic, species dying out at a phenomenal rate, whole ecosystems being destroyed as we speak. Our daily lives are affecting this incredible place. And I guess the big question is, well, is it too late? We're going to find out a bit more about sustainable projects which could fix problems. And hopefully... Unscrew the planet. This week on Earth Unscrewed. We're talking Earth. As in soil, dirt, glorious mud, whatever you want to call it. The entire agricultural sector is responsible for about a quarter of the world's greenhouse gas emissions. Somaliland used to be, only 150 years ago actually, covered in trees... And now it's just absolutely barren. Primarily it's overgrazing, desertification, chopping down trees. In short, agriculture as we know it is screwing up the planet. Yep, so industrial agriculture might be feeding people all around the world, but right now it's responsible for more greenhouse gas emissions than transport. Seems kind of unbelievable, really. The food we eat is perhaps worse for the environment than the cars we drive. Mm. So it might seem a bit strange that all that carbon's wrapped up in the food we eat. And we're going to find a bit more about how that happens a bit later in the programme. So actually, in moderation, greenhouse gases are kind of a good thing. I mean, without them, this planet would be a snowball. We do need some CO2, well, partly to feed the plants that we eat and also that produce oxygen for us to breathe. Yeah, and we need some CO2 because otherwise it would be pretty chilly around here. But it's all about balance. And we're throwing that out of balance at the moment by producing so much of our own CO2. So it's becoming really clear that when we put too much of these greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, it's not a good thing. So that's both the CO2 we're releasing from fossil fuels, the methane that's coming out in mostly cow's farts, actually. That's where a lot of methane comes from. Too much of it is just bad news for the planet and for all of the ecosystems and everything else that relies on them, including us. So we met up with the people behind Nori. That's the world's first marketplace working to draw greenhouse gases in the atmosphere back down to safer levels. My name is Paul Gamble and I'm the CEO of Nori. And I think of myself more as the chief plate spinner for the team. I'm Ross Kenyon. I identify as a cross-functional wildcard. I changed my LinkedIn the other day to that. My name is Christoph Jaspe and... My role at Nori is chief development officer, but much like Ross, my true role is used carbon salesman. So when we think about how farming is, quote unquote, screwing up the earth, there are a whole lot of dynamics to this issue. One way is first and foremost, so let's take what's happening in Brazil as an example. 
we cut down old growth forest, which release massive amounts of carbon, and then plant all sorts of very intense crops. And the way that those crops are planted is by tilling very heavily. And when we till or plow the earth, that overturns dirt and, or soil, if you will, which has been storing carbon, which is now released into the atmosphere. When plants are grown, we also look for ways to increase the productivity of those plants. So we need to add fertilizer. The way in which fertilizer is produced is through refining ammonia and when you refine ammonia, you're essentially emitting pure CO2 directly into the atmosphere. The other piece, too, which is quite natural, is when you plow, we need to use fossil fuels in order to power the plow. And so the entire agricultural sector is responsible for about a quarter of the world's greenhouse gas emissions. How can we mend this? When we kind of think about the shift that needs to happen, it goes from changing from planting monocultures, or that's so one single crop, and oftentimes year over year, and switching from planting monocultures to rotating the crops and finding crops that sort of in concert can improve the health of the soil because now instead of planting the same thing where you have weeds which are resistant to one type of crop, you sort of change that around a little bit more. We can also now shift from intense tillage to no tillage. And what that means is instead of having a plow turn over the dirt and releasing the carbon dioxide from that, we kind of keep the nutrients in the ground and they pile on top of each other, building up the soil organic matter. And we can plant cover crops. So cover crops are non-cash crops. Some of them indeed can be harvested, but the cover crops play a really important function because what they do is they increase the nutrients into the soil. And that, in some cases, can entirely replace the need for buying fertilizer. Well, this brings down the production of the field for the first maybe two, three, four years. By year five, what ends up happening is the land is retaining way more water, is now increasing the yields of what is being grown, and is now not causing runoff. And so to use a word for your fancy word for your very educated audience, eutrophication. And what eutrophication is, is essentially where you have nitrogen and phosphorus, which are great fertilizers for the field. But when you put too much of them in the fields and then it rains, they run off into the streams, rivers and lakes and they cause toxic algal blooms. And actually around the world, we have over 800 dead zones, which are from eutrophication. In a way, the solution is less is more and going back to the old ways of farming, which have been understood for thousands of years, can contribute to a much more resilient crop production. There are a number of benefits to regenerative agriculture. So number one, you're saving money because you're spending less on fertilizer. You're spending less on machinery. There's less carbon dioxide going into the atmosphere because you now don't need to refine the nitrogen through ammonia refining. Um, you now don't need to spend money on your fuel sources to power that plow. You have more carbon in your soil, which makes your crops grow bigger, better, faster, more nutritious.
Nori is a company on a mission to reverse climate change, and we see it as a sort of simple arithmetic problem. Climate change is caused by too many greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, and the way to fix that is to simply remove those greenhouse gases. Uh, we call this uh, larger industry carbon removal. Nori is a marketplace that makes it easier for people to pay for removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. And there are a number of different ways, regenerative agriculture being just one of them, by which that uh, carbon removal can take place. So we are doing the work of measuring and verifying carbon dioxide removed and then creating and issuing certificates of carbon removal and making those available for sale to buyers who want to pay for removing that carbon dioxide. So there are uh, sort of three different groups that would be interacting with our marketplace. There are the suppliers. So these are, in the regenerative agricultural case, farmers who are removing carbon dioxide as a part of their agricultural practices. They would enlist their farm and their practices in the Nori marketplace and begin submitting data about their farm and the soil samples that might be taken. Then independent third-party verifiers come and verify the processes that they're doing and the data that they've entered and that uh, gets repeatedly audited over time. And then those certificates that are created and issued are entered into a queue and sold. And those are purchased by buyers who might be corporations who want to offset their emissions or individuals or in the future, this might be a simple process that's embedded into everyday actions of life that people take. For every ton of carbon dioxide that a farmer uh, removes and stores in their soil, they'll get paid using our cryptocurrency, the Nori token. One token will always purchase one ton of CO2, which means that whatever the price of the token is, which is set by the market, not by Nori, is now a universal market-driven price on carbon. And the farmers have these tokens and then they can choose what to do with them if they want to sell those for cash or for another cryptocurrency or invest that however they might go about it. But they're receiving real payments uh, from real people for these ecosystem services that they're providing. What most excites me about Nori is that when you're able to pay people uh, for removing carbon dioxide, you're able to uh, essentially appeal to their self-interest and have them do something that's in the public good. So you're leveraging their self-interest for pro-social ends, which uh, especially in the United States, environmentalism often feels punitive. But if you're able to reward people economically, we think a lot of conflict would erode such that we would have less fights over economic growth versus the environment. So we've covered a bit of ground on the relationship between farming and the carbon cycle, but next we wanted to learn about the relationship between farming and the water cycle. And as we discovered in our episode about the fashion industry, farming crops can be really water intensive. So what happens in places where the water's scarce? Like the desert. In fact, many parts of the world are turning from thriving ecosystems into barren deserts because the land has been badly managed. Yes, but the weird thing about the desert is that often it's right by the ocean. So there's tonnes of water, it's just salty. And you can't grow crops in salty water. And the process of getting salt out of the water is super energy intensive. So I hear you asking, what's the answer? Well, we went to meet some people who think they've come up with a solution. My name's Charlie Payton. I started this company, Seawater Greenhouse, which is 
is a method of using seawater for growing crops in hot, arid places. We don't use seawater to irrigate, but we use the water for air conditioning and to convert into fresh water. My name is Carl Fletcher. Uh, I'm the head of business development for Seawater Greenhouse. My job is sort of to take what we've created and designed Charlie's invention and to create a marketable product that's profitable and uh, to be able to expand into new regions. They're actually based in Hackney in East London and we went to their workshop to find out a bit more. It's in the process of um, being redeveloped. It was a really cool place, actually. We knocked on this door. It didn't seem like there was much going on behind it. But there was a whole workshop behind it full of tools and all sorts of great stuff. And we went upstairs to the greenhouse. Yeah, and so we did the interview in a greenhouse on the roof. So, yeah, seawater greenhouses, they do exactly what they say on the tin. Yep, so where fresh water is scarce, but there's loads of seawater around, a seawater greenhouse pumps salty water from the sea into the greenhouse so crops can be grown. But of course, as we said, plants can't be grown in salty conditions. Right, so we asked how this all works. If you're feeling too hot in here, you could take that towel, wet it, put it on your head, you cool down. And that's basically what we do. We have this material, which is an evaporator, which is like a wet towel, but we make the entire wall of the greenhouse out of this material. So I'm looking at the, the block of, of this uh, amazing material. I've got a little piece of it here, and it's very light. I mean, this is only a small, sort of less than a square foot. kind of calls to mind, to me, Viennetta ice cream in lots of layers. And this has alternating layers of green and um, cardboard, coloured cardboard. But it does look more like a sort of, yeah, a honeycomb made into a large house brick. So we run seawater down here like it's, it's a big sponge, it's, it's like blotting paper. So when the wind blows through it, this wet, soggy, seawatery sponge cools the air, evaporates seawater and humidifies the air. So we have cooler, more humid air. And those two things alone reduce the amount of water a plant needs maybe tenfold. Then we also provide a bit of shade and wind protection so that we're working towards creating cool, humid, protected conditions in which plants will thrive using very little water. So we need to minimise the amount of fresh water we need for irrigation by creating conditions where plants are happy, basically. Right, right, right. So, so this would be the wall that accepts the, the wind. The wind blows through this, it's full of seawater, and the air on the other side would be more humid and cooler. Yes, and, and cleaner, actually. And cleaner. Yeah, the salt yeah. that's left behind as a steriliser. Everyone understands water and how expensive it is to make it, but nobody thinks about water vapour, which is very easy to make. So the guys at Seawater Greenhouse first put their idea to the test in Australia. And the results are super impressive and they've won loads of awards. Uh, as well as, of course, producing tonnes and tonnes of tomatoes. And, of course, the idea caught people's attention. A lot of the Somali diaspora here in London said, oh, that looks really cool. Can we have that in Somaliland? And we said, ooh, not really. It's the design we used there in Australia was very complicated. It was very expensive and capital intensive. And if you're trying to do it in somewhere like Somaliland, you have to rethink the design so it's more appropriate, obviously, for the area and easier for local farmers to uptake it. 
So we had to think, we redesigned the entire envelope while keeping the two core elements basically, and that's using seawater to cool the greenhouse by evaporating it and to desalinate a bit of it to provide fresh water for irrigation. And we basically designed everything else around that to make it as cheap, as low cost and as rugged uh, as possible basically. And this was really exciting because in many parts of Somalia it's difficult to grow crops. A lot of the land is arid and water is scarce, but it hasn't always been this way. Somaliland used to be, only 150 years ago actually, covered in trees, and now it's just absolutely barren. Primarily it's overgrazing, desertification, chopping down trees. 60% of their income comes from breeding, selling goats, exporting live animals. But goats are the most water-intensive food you can grow and they're the most destructive animal on the planet when it comes to nibble, nibble, nibble because they tend to go for the new growth, new shoots, so nothing gets a chance. Part of what's happened is that the water cycle has been broken. So when you overgraze the trees, when you cut them all down, uh, they're obviously letting out a lot of water which create clouds, which create rain in the highlands and that comes back through, so that's the cycle. I think part of the inspiration for the seawater greenhouse was to restore that cycle using water from the ocean and to sort of bring in that missing link, if you will. It's not just about making the area inside the greenhouses cool and humid, ideal for growing plants. No, it's bigger than that. It's about restoring the water cycle so that the areas around the greenhouse also become more fertile for growing. And you'll see the design here for 10,000 square metres is only about 1,500 square metres of greenhouse. So that humidity and that cool air that it creates exits the greenhouse behind and creates the oasis effect. So you're seeing plant growth. Even if we didn't plant anything, things would start growing uh, because they have those sheltered conditions. But of course, you can take advantage of that to increase the return to the farmer by planting valuable crops. And talking of money, we asked Charlie to do some maths. We did a very simple back-of-the-envelope calculation, which if you wanted to make Somaliland self-sufficient in food, in fresh vegetables, fresh produce, according to the World Health Organization minimum, you would need around 2,000 hectares of this type of seawater greenhouse farm. OK, so that's, that's doable. That's doable. Yeah. The capital cost is, is a mere 400 million. OK. One-off cost. Compared to all of this aid money that's... that's only 1% of annual aid flows to to Africa, which... The bottom line here, what you're showing us, is that, you know, it wouldn't take endless amounts of land or endless amounts of money to actually expand this way of making food to make it sustainable for a whole country, which is... That's amazing. Yeah, forever, actually. Forever, not just for one year, but forever. And broadening out this question from Somaliland, how could seawater greenhouses have an impact on the way we grow food in other areas of the globe? As we've discussed, industrial farming today has left so much land arid and unworkable. But as the human population rises year by year, we're having to produce more and more food. Currently we're seeing a worrying trend of deforestation to clear the way for more fertile farmland. In our space episode, we heard NASA astronaut and space shuttle commander Mark Kelly talk about witnessing this process from space. Over a decade of space flights, he saw huge areas of forest transformed into farmland. Mm, Scary stuff. And not only does this process leach more carbon into the atmosphere, contributing to global warming, but it also clears valuable habitats, homes of rich biodiversity and important wildlife.
In short, clearing forest for farmland is a really bad idea for the planet. So could seawater greenhouses be an alternative? Could they help us transform deserts into lush farming land by helping to restore water cycles in arid coastal plains? It seems like a good idea. I mean, I'm always hesitant to jump on this kind of utopian bandwagon. We're going to fix the world with this one technology. But the idea that some people in arid places where the water is quite salty, those people could actually maybe make a living in the same area without having to move altogether, without us having to abandon bits of land. So there seems to be a big question at the heart of all of this. With human populations on the rise and a current trend of fertile land on the decline, how are we going to feed ourselves without screwing up the planet further? We spoke to a man who thinks he knows the answer. I'm Michael Doan, and I have the privilege of working for the Nature Conservancy, and I'm the managing director of our agriculture and food systems work at the Nature Conservancy. You actually caught me on our farm. I'm a farmer as well as a conservationist, and I think that makes a good combination. Our farm is located in central Kansas. It's a very traditional farm where we've got cattle and, and crops. So when I'm not you know, out working on Nature Conservancy business, uh, I'm usually running equipment or working with cattle or things like that. Uh, the Nature Conservancy, our mission, is really to conserve land and water upon which all life depends. We're really doubling down, I think, on our engagement with the agri-food sector because if you look at the amount of land and water that's devoted to agriculture, it's really quite shocking. About 40% of the habitable land is already used to produce agriculture products. It's for a good purpose. It's for feeding people. But the challenge is that over the next three decades, we'll need to uh, increase agricultural output to meet growing demand. And so uh, our challenge is how can we produce more without allocating more resources to that equation? So the question oftentimes is what is sustainable intensification? To intensify is to find ways to produce perhaps more food on the same amount of land with the same amount of water or other key inputs. I think one of the big challenges that people often don't think about is just how much land is already devoted to agriculture and then how that land use is changing. Because we have a changing climate, we're seeing that the signals to farmers are often to continue to expand their farm holdings. We see this a lot in places like Indonesia or Southeast Asia where the demand for certain commodities is pressuring natural habitats and farmers are seeking to expand their land. That's happening at a clip of about 12 million hectares a year. That is really not helpful at all. How do we keep intensifying agriculture in the best lands without bringing natural habitats into ag and really kind of head off that unplanned expansion. There's still a lot of opportunity to take land that's already producing and increase that production while also either holding those inputs and those resources steady or actually seeing them decline. We are always trying new things, and I think that's one of the things I've always experienced in my time working on a farm is that, you know, every year is an opportunity to try something new. And so there's a lot of innovation going on. So one of the things that we're trying that's new on our farm, and we produce crops like soybeans and sorghum, and so there's a big premium on us being able to produce high yields. So the more output we can produce, the more profitable it is for our farm. 
But a persistent challenge is weed control. Weeds come through and really challenge kind of the, the growing crash crop in terms of nutrients. In the off seasons, you know, the time when those crash crops are not growing, we're also growing uh, something called cover crops. And these crops that are not grown for a cash market, they're not going to be harvested and sold forward in the market, but they're grown really to provide better fertility for the soil, to provide cover, to provide habitat. We're trying to see if they can help us with weed suppression in a way that's more natural and, and more uh, kind of ecological. I'm very hopeful about uh, this big challenge that we have. People want to get this right. You know, they care about getting it right. If we work at this with all of our knowledge and new insights and just really rethink the way that we can work together, we can get this job done. Well, that's it for another episode of Earth Unscrewed. To read out more on the topics and themes of this episode, don't forget to check out our website where there'll be more reading. We've put a link in the description of this episode. Don't forget to subscribe on your favourite podcast app. And leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Until next time, from me, Helen Scales. And from me, Shay Rhodes. Bye. Bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.